Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Thank you for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. Challenge you to go to baptistpulpit.com and look around, subscribe to some podcasts. I have three Baptist Pulpit, Baptist Vices, Moment of Ministry. There's other Baptist men that have podcasts, and we try to f- let you know about those. We also feature some authors. And prayerfully, you can browse around, look at that, and be a help to you in your growth in Baptist uh, theology, Baptist philosophy. Our featured speaker for today is Pastor Tom Brennan. After six years establishing a church in rural Pennsylvania and 16 years in working in an inner city uh, church in Chicago, in 2019, Pastor Tom Brennan accepted the call to pastor Bible Baptist Church in Dubuque, Iowa, and that's where he presently pastors. Uh, he and his wife have been married since 1999. Uh, they have three children. Pastor Brennan is uh, a, an avid reader. He loves blogging. You can look him up at Concerning Jesus or his author website, Brennan's Pen. Pray that the message will be a blessing to you as you listen to the Baptist pulpit today. All right, take your Bibles. Go to Exodus chapter 34, please. Exodus chapter 34. I wish my mother could hear that introduction. I'm glad my wife did. Exodus 34. One of the principal things to grasp about the Word of God is what it is. It is the revelation of God. It is not primarily written to teach me how to live a better life or to give me a better life. It's not primarily written to give me instructions. It's primarily written to show me who God is. Now, in the course of showing me who God is, it then tells me what God expects of me, which is the instructions he gives me. But when I look in the Word of God, I don't look in it primarily to find something for me. I look in the Word of God primarily to find something about God. It's the revelation of God. When you grasp that about the Word of God, you begin to read it differently and study it differently and preach it differently. If I'm supposed to be preaching the whole counsel of God and I'm supposed to be preaching the word of God, then that means I'm always going to be preaching about God because it is the revelation of God, which means one of the great themes of my preaching ministry has to be talking about who God is. And one of the ways that you can study the Bible about who God is is you can study God's names. I did not name myself. If I had, I would be Superman Brennan because that's what I think I am. Uh, But uh, I didn't name myself. My mother named me. And so since I didn't choose my own name, it's not an expression of who I am. 
Obviously, my name stands for something. It represents something to the people that know me. But I didn't choose my own name. But God, on the other hand, chose every single one of his names. And he put them in the word of God on purpose specifically to tell us something about him. Every word in the Bible is there on purpose. And if the purpose of the word of God is to reveal God to us, then the names he chose to use for himself tell us something about who God is. And if we can grasp that better, the Bible says in 1 John that the more clearly we see him, the more we can be like him. And so when I look in the word of God, I want to find out who God is so I can become like him. So this evening what I want to do is I want to take the word of God and I want to talk about one of the names of God. So if you have your Bibles in Exodus chapter 34, look with me please at verse number 5. Exodus 34 verse number 5. Your King James Version, it says, and the Lord. See how that's capitalized there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Almost every time you see that word Lord capitalized in the King James Version, it's for the name Jehovah. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, he's announcing himself. In verse 5, he said he proclaimed his own name. In verse 6, he proclaims it again. He announces himself by his name, the Lord, the Lord God. Then he describes himself, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that while by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So what's Moses' response to this revelation of God? I did a study one time on worship, and I came to the conclusion that the definition of worship, worship is our response when we meet with God. Worship is not singing. You can worship when you're singing, but it's not singing. Worship is our response when we meet with God. And Moses meets with God, and what does he do? Verse number 8, Moses made haste and bowed. You always find that in conjunction with worship because it includes humility, right? I see God for who he is. What's my reaction? I prostrate prostrate myself on the ground. Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshiped. Why? Because he met with God. Jehovah sometimes used with the letters Y-H-W-H, pronounced in English occasionally Yahweh, is found, that word Jehovah is found four times in the King James Version, but 6,519 times in the Bible translated as Lord or God. It's the most often used name for God in the entire Bible. I think it's sad that it's been hijacked by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because of that, we're a little bit afraid to use the word Jehovah. In fact, if it is used at all, more is discussed about how to pronounce it because the Jews, of course, think it ought to be pronounced this way or not pronounced at all. And so the discussion is all about that rather than why did God name himself that and what does that tell me about who God is? The first name revealed for God in the word of God is Elohim. It's the word translated God in Genesis chapter number one. And God said, let us make man in our own image. Elohim tells us several things about God. It tells us that God is the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. And when the Jews in Jesus' lifetime rejected him because they said he did not believe in a monotheistic religion and because he proclaimed himself to be God, he was violating the cardinal commandment of there's only one Lord, they didn't understand their own Torah. God is plural. He's three in one. 
God said, let us make man in our own image. In Genesis chapter 1, he reveals himself as a creator and he reveals himself as a covenant-keeping God. Elohim keeps his promises. I love the word covenant in the Bible because it's a stronger form of the word contract. If I enter into a contract with you and I pay you $1,000 to come and paint my house and you come and you paint my house and you do a bad job, I may not pay you the money. You can sue me and I can sue you and contracts can be broken, but covenant, most of the time the Bible uses the word covenant. Again, everywhere the Bible is there on purpose, most of the time the Bible uses the word covenant, it implies or states it's an unconditional promise on God's part toward us. God entered into a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter number 15. The Bible says that he brought Abraham to the center of a path. This was the, the back, in, back in Abraham's day, the way you entered into a covenant was called cutting the covenant. And you took an animal and you cut that animal up in pieces and you strewed him along the path. And you met with a person you were entering into a covenant with and you walked down the center of that path, thus signifying that if you broke your covenant with this other person, they could cut you up in pieces just like the animal you're walking through. God enters into a covenant with Abraham, Elohim does, and Abrahamic covenant. And when he gets in Genesis chapter 15 to the center of that path, the Bible says he puts Abraham to sleep and he walks through the center of it by himself. You know why? Because God knew Abraham could never keep his end of the covenant and God said, I'm going to keep my end of the covenant anyway. Elohim is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his word. And so God loves us because he said he would love us. John three sixteen four. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. First John chapter number four. What the, the, John says the greatest description of love or definition or, or example of love there's ever been is when the father sent the son to die on the cross. And what's our response to that? We love him because he first loved us. Elohim loves us because he is a contract-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. But in Genesis chapter 2, where Jehovah is used for the very first time, it tells us he loves us not because of, of his quality, but because he chooses to. Jehovah in the original language is formed from a Hebrew word which means to be formed twice. In other words, to be, to be. And that's not Shakespeare there. That's Jehovah. It's, I could phrase it this way, when you say Jehovah, you're saying the one who is what he is. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. In other words, Jehovah, that name implies that God is who he is. You're not going to come to God and get God to adjust himself. You have to adjust yourself to him. God has declared, this is who I am, and because this is who I am, and I'm an unchangeable God, this is, you're going to have to deal with who I am. This is my nature. I believe that the primary attribute of God is his holiness, and it's indicated in his own name. Well, it's impossible in this message tonight to explore the over 6,000 places in the Bible where Jehovah is used. It is possible to trace a continuous application of how and why God chooses to use that name in certain circumstances, thus telling us something about himself that I want to know. Three statements for you tonight and then some application. Number one, Jehovah reveals a God who requires righteousness. Jehovah reveals a God who requires righteousness. A simple definition of righteousness is righteousness is doing what is right in the eyes of God. In the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in... That's not righteousness. Just because you think it's right doesn't mean it's right. Righteousness is not righteousness when I do what I think it's right. Righteousness is righteousness when I do what God says is right. So righteousness is what is right in the eyes of God. Well, the Bible tells us that Jehovah is one who requires righteousness. That's who he is. 
Psalm 33, verse number 5. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord, meaning Jehovah. No, what This Jehovah, he loves righteousness. Well, because he loves righteousness, he then loves judgment. How can you love judgment if you love righteousness? Because if you love righteousness and you don't find it, you must then judge that unrighteousness. Wherever he finds unrighteousness, he must judge it. At whatever cost, he must judge it. God reveals himself, as I said in Scripture, first is Elohim. In this we see the one who love, whose love works with and overcomes all. But in Genesis chapter number 2 and chapter number 3 is the story of the fall. And there we see him revealed not as Elohim, but as the Lord God, as Jehovah Elohim. Two times, I'm sorry, 11 times in Genesis chapter 2 and 10 times in Genesis chapter 3, he names himself Jehovah. The whole purpose of this section is to reveal to man his own natural sinful state. As my brother stood behind this sacred desk and preached this morning, we love to think we're good people, but we're not. We're dirty, rotten, no good, heathen sinners. That's what we are. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 tells us that. Why? It puts us in contrast to Jehovah. It is as Jehovah Elohim that he places man in Eden and instructs them what they can and cannot eat in Genesis chapter 2. There are people who say the law only came by Moses. Well, they're technically correct about the Mosaic law. They don't understand that God revealed himself as a thou shalt and thou shalt not God all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 when he said you can eat from that one, but you can't eat from that one. That's who God is. God is a God who says this is what you can do and this is what you will do and this is what you can't do and this is what you won't do and if you insist upon going this way, then judgment's going to come. It says Jehovah Elohim that he pronounces judgment upon the serpent and the woman in the man in Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because the serpent and the woman and the man all went an unrighteous direction. He loves righteousness. He can't abide unrighteousness. When he finds unrighteousness, he must pour judgment out upon it. And that's what Jehovah does in Genesis chapter number 3. It is as Jehovah that he respects Abel's obedient sacrifice and rejects Cain's disobedient sacrifice in Genesis chapter number 4. He come, now, he could have chosen any name for himself to choose in his interactions with Cain and Abel, but he chose to name himself Jehovah. Why? He demanded that Abel and Cain do this. Abel did it. Cain disobeyed. And so Jehovah agreed with what Abel did, and he disagreed with what Cain did, and judgment fell upon Cain in response. It is as Jehovah that he beheld the wickedness of, the man, of man in the days of Noah and pronounced judgment upon the earth with the flood. Genesis chapter number 6, and God, that's Jehovah, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the opposite of righteousness. Verse number 6, it repented the Lord, that's Jehovah, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord, that's Jehovah, said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Who was it that pronounced judgment upon rebellious, sinful, unrighteous humanity? It was Jehovah. Why? Because he requires righteousness. This is not an option with him. You know, there's some things when you're dealing with people, you say, I would prefer that you do this, or I would like if if you do this, especially if you just heard a sermon about being courteous. But there's some things you look at somebody and you say, this is not an option. You have to do this. You're going to do this. That's who Jehovah is. 
It is as Elohim that he instructs Noah to build an ark and establishes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter number 6 because Elohim is the covenant-keeping God. But it says Elo- and, but, but it says Jehovah that he instructs Noah to bring seven of every kind of clean creature in Genesis chapter number 7. Why? Because after the judgment of the flood was executed and the earth was cleansed, Noah had to offer a sacrifice. Genesis 8.20, Noah built an altar unto the Lord, that's Jehovah, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He only took two animals of all the ones that need to stay alive, but he took seven of, the, of, of, of some so he could sacrifice them to Jehovah. Take your Bibles, look when they please at Exodus chapter number 20. The first statement tonight is Jehovah requires righteousness. Not an option with him. He requires righteousness. He's the thou shalt and thou shalt not go. Where do you find the most famous passage of scripture about thou shalt and Thou shalt not, you find it in Exodus chapter number 20. Look with me please at verse number 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am, he's going to name himself here, right? He's going to identify himself here. Why does he do that? Because he wants people to know who's talking. Because it makes a difference. I am who? The? That's Jehovah thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself down to them nor serve them for. Here's the reason. I, the Lord, that's Jehovah, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We just saw that in Exodus 34. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. People say the Old Testament God was a mean, terrible, vicious God. They don't understand the God revealed in the Bible. He's not a mean, vicious, terrible God. Even in the Old Testament, he's a God of grace and mercy. He requires righteousness and he pours out mercy when he doesn't find it. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse number 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's Jehovah. For the Lord, that's Jehovah, will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. He requires that you speak of his name with reverence. Can I just run a rabbit trail for a moment and say I'm, I'm a little weary of preachers in their preaching just carelessly throwing off the phrase, bless God, and moving on. God's name is not an interjection. It's a holy thing. He goes on to say in verse number 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, that's Jehovah. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the who? The Lord, Jehovah, made heaven and earth, the sea, all that in them is, rested the seventh day. Wherefore the, there it is again, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord, there it is again, thy God giveth thee. When you're disobedient to your parents, when you're dishonorable to your parents, you're not messing with your parents, you're messing with Jehovah. And listen, he doesn't adjust himself to you. He's the one who is what he is. In your little 15-year-old mind, you think that you can rise up in, in, in rebellion and disobedience to your parents. It's not your parents that are the problem. It's Jehovah who requires of you an honoring of your parents. I was reading a book about parenting some years ago, and it was beating me up, as those books often do. And this particular writer was talking about what a, uh, when you put a bad support under a good rule, and that makes it bad. 
He talked about parents who tell their children, you should obey me because I feed you and I clothe you and I care for you and I protect you. And so you should obey me because I do all that for you. That's the wrong reason. My children are not supposed to obey me because I feed them and clothe them and house them and educate them. Although I do all those things, they're supposed to obey me because God told them to. Uh, We then find verse number 13, thou shalt not kill. Verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's house, nor uh, cover thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy, thy neighbor's. That's who Jehovah is. He comes to you and he says, thou shalt. I love the King James Version for lots of reasons, but one is because it's very blunt. You find the phrase, thus saith the, in the King James Version. You don't find that in other versions. You find a thou shalt and a thou shalt not. It's a very cut and dried thing. It's a very black and white thing. It's a very yes or no thing. It's either you're either in or you're out. He comes to you and he says, this is what you're supposed to do. It's not an option. It's not a preference. It's not a desire. It's not my counsel to you. It's what I'm demanding of you. You will do these things and you will not do these things. Why? Because I am who I am, he said. All the Old Testament religious priestly practices and the painstaking care required of the priests was in the name of Jehovah. In the book of Leviticus, you find the phrase offerings of the Lord nine times. You find the phrase temple of the Lord 20 times in the Old Testament. Because this is who Jehovah is, he requires holiness. The simplest definition I can give you of holiness, and I can give you really long ones, but the simplest definition I can give you of holiness is holiness is being like God. What's God like? You go be like that and you're holy. But God requires holiness because of who he is. It forces him to require of you and I that we live righteous. Leviticus chapter 11. For I am the Lord, that's Jehovah your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves and ye shall be holy for I am holy. He said, this is me. This is who I am. I'm not going to change. I am who I am. I require of you to adjust yourself to that. And so you must be holy because this is what I'm like, he said. Leviticus 19, verse 2, speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord, Jehovah your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 26, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. The whole rationale in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is a priestly manual written to describe to the Jews how to run their religion. And the whole point of that book is, Jews, listen, you're different than all the other people around you. You're not like the Philistines and you're not like the Ammonites and you're not like the Moabites and you're not like the Egyptians and you're not like everybody else. You're my people and since you're my people, you're supposed to be like me. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, be be like your Father which is in heaven. My children should... Reflect the fact they're my children. I think there may be one person in the room tonight who's met my father besides my family. That's Kristen Wilcox. She'll vouch for this that I am but much like my father. He's 80 years of age. He pastored for 37 years. He's gotten to the point in his life where he does not preach much anymore. But if you were to look at the two of us, you would say, that's the dead and that's the son. But beyond just looking at us, you would find that our lives are very, very similar. He was an independent Baptist preacher, and so am I. He raised his family to love and serve God, and so have I. He, he had a certain way of looking at things, and 
My way is very similar to his. I'm like him. I should be like him because he's my father. There should be a resemblance there. And that's what God said. He comes to you and he comes to me and he says, listen, you're mine. You belong to me. And since this is who I am, this is what my DNA is. This is what runs through my veins. Then it's what ought to run through your veins. The Bible says, be partakers of his holiness. I can't partake of his omnipotence. I don't have that power. I can't partake of his omniscience. I don't have that knowledge. I can't partake of his omnipresence. I can only be in one place at one time. But I can partake of his holiness. I can have the morality of God, the purity of God. I can pursue that. And I'm demanded by him to pursue that because he's my father and I'm his child. We find the same thing not just in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, but we find it all through the Bible. Psalms, for example, Psalm 11, the Lord, that's Jehovah, trieth the righteous how you have work done, you take it to the teacher to have it inspected, and the teacher scrawls all over it and hands it back. When I was a kid, my mother, I have four older sisters, and that's why sometimes I twitch. <laughs> it's like having five moms. Therapy has helped me a lot with that. So is kickboxing. But anyway, um, I have no idea where I was going with that, but it was wonderful. Oh, my mother. My mother, I was the first son. Uh, It was four older sisters, me, and then a younger brother. And then they realized they'd messed it all up and they stopped. They should have stopped with me, really. But in some ways, my mother thought I was a girl. She didn't dress me like one, but she made me take piano. Nothing wrong with a boy taking piano, but I didn't want to. And I felt it made me girlish. But my mother, this is the proof of the fact she thought I was a girl. She made me do dishes. I said she thought I was a girl, so she made me do dishes. I'm going to preach the Bible whether you like it or not. Now, it wasn't enough for me to do the dishes the way I wanted to do the dishes. I wanted to do the dishes so quickly, you know, you, you don't wash them, you baptize them, right? And then move on through. I mean, listen, you don't hold people under the water when you baptize them, right? Well, I do I, until they promise to tie, then I let them back up and... But she'd stand beside me as just a little boy. I mean, seven, eight years of age, she'd stand beside me. And I'd take that dish and I'd wash that dish and I'd rinse that dish and I'd put that dish over the dish rack. And she'd pick it up, she'd look at it through the light, and she'd hand it back to me and she'd say, that's not good enough, Tommy. Because of who, and oh, my mother, she's the cleanest lady I've ever met in my life. When we had visitors over, oh, I hated when the visitors told us ahead of time they were coming. She made us clean that house from top to bottom. I mean, we, I'm, not, I'm not preaching, I'm telling the truth. She made us pull the couches out and dust the baseboards behind the couches and put the couches back. And she'd look at that glass and she'd say, that's not good enough, Tommy. You belong to me. You're my son. This is my standard for how you'll wash a dish. And that one's not going to pass. You've got to do better. And trust me, she wasn't going to adjust herself to me. I had to adjust myself to her. Because of who I was, her son. Psalm 11, the Lord trieth the righteous, tests. Make sure what you say is righteous really passes as righteous. That's why, again, take you to the Sermon on the Mount and how, how Jesus peeled back those layers the Pharisees had put on everything, covered it over, and he peeled it back, and he pointed right to the heart, and he said, Listen, I don't care what you've done or what you haven't done. If your heart's wrong, then you're wrong. 
The Lord Jehovah trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. That's the Jehovah that judges the, 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 the unrighteous. For the righteous Lord Jehovah loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Why do I say he is a God who requires righteousness? Because we see Jehovah repeatedly in scripture giving commandments requiring holiness and sending judgment on those who do not do right. Exodus 15, 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord? That's Jehovah among the gods. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? That's who God is. Number two. Number one is Jehovah requires righteousness. Number two, Jehovah reveals a God who is himself affected by the destruction sin brings to us. He's affected by the destruction sin brings. He requires righteousness. He demands righteousness. He tests for righteousness. When he doesn't find it, he again moves to judgment. But he's not callous. He's not cold. He's not unfeeling. He's not mechanical. He's not, well, that didn't work. Oh, move over here now. The Bible tells me that when God turns from righteousness and he doesn't find it and he turns to judgment, the Bible tells me he does it with a broken heart. He doesn't do it because he loves to. He does it because he must because of who he is, but it breaks his heart to do it. In Judges chapter 10, verse number 6, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the and serve, that's Jehovah, and serve Balaam and Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and forsook the, and served not him. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the children of Ammon. He came to them, and in righteousness he demanded they worship only him. There's one Lord, one Jehovah, that's all. And what do they do? They worship all the gods of the nations around them. And so he pours out judgment upon them. And the Bible says in verse number 9, Israel was sore distressed. But what's the reaction? Verse number 16, finally they come to him in repentance. They put away the strange gods from among them and serve the Lord. And his, that is the Lord's soul, was grieved for the misery of Israel. Righteousness, I require righteousness. I don't find righteousness. I then must pour out judgment. And as a result of judgment, you are just in misery. And I hurt that you're in misery. You know how your parents said this hurts me more than it? That's biblical. The psalmist quoting Jehovah about how Jehovah felt when he had to punish Israel for his disobedience with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Jehovah says in Psalm 95, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation. Isaiah quotes Jehovah in Isaiah 63 verse 9, in all their afflictions he was afflicted. In other words, yes, Jehovah is the stern Old Testament God demanding righteousness and holiness, but at the same time his heart is broken because of what sin does to us. Which brings me then to my third point. Take your Bibles, go to Isaiah 53, please. Number one, Jehovah requires righteousness. Number two, when he doesn't find it and he pours out judgment, his heart is grieved at the result. 
The third thing I find when I study who God is in the Bible under the name Jehovah is I find this, and this is, this is why I came tonight. This is beautiful. Jehovah reveals a God whose righteousness demands he not rest until he makes his creatures as righteous as he is. I said Jehovah reveals a God whose righteousness demands of him that he not rest until he makes his creatures as righteous as he is. What does he require? Righteousness. But what don't I have? Righteousness. What's Romans 3.10 say? As it is written, there is none. What's righteousness? It's doing what is right in the eyes of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So Jehovah comes to me and he requires righteousness and he's unbending. He is who he is and he's not going to give in an inch, but I don't have it. No matter how hard I try, I can't manufacture it, I can't force it, I can't pay for it, I can't. And even if I could somehow stop sinning today, I would still have a mountain of sin I had yesterday. He requires righteousness, and no matter what I do, I can't meet that requirement. But he can't stop requiring it. Because he is who he is. So he's not going to adjust his requirements. He's not going to, he's not going to lower the bar. He's not going to say, oh, you know what? We're just going to give everybody a participation trophy and move on. That's universalism. He requires righteousness. But we can never meet it. So what did he do? That's the only way I can be righteous. He sent Jesus. He sent himself. Who lived a perfect sinless life. Died on the cross for me. And the Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. But the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word propitiation in Romans chapter 3 in that context of sin. This sin means I owe God something and I can never meet the payment. I can never give him what he he must have. And so he sent Jesus. Jesus who never did a single thing wrong. Jesus who in John chapter 8 stood in front of a crowd of people that hated his guts and said, which of you convinceth me of sin? That word convinceth is the same word for convict in the Bible. It's to be absolutely convinced of something. He said, go ahead, anybody here, you all hate me. Just, 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 just prove I've ever done anything wrong. They couldn't. They couldn't at his trial. They lied about him. They, 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 they fraudulently executed him without any good reason. There was nothing he was guilty of. Pilate says it so well. He says, I find no fault in this man. And in the past 2,000 years of world history, nobody's ever found any fault in that man. What does God require? Righteousness. What did Jesus give him? Righteousness. Well, then why in the world did he die then? For me. For you. 
to be the propitiation for our souls, the atonement so I can be at one, the atonement so I can be at one with God. See, God requires righteousness. Jehovah has to have it, but I can't give it. Well, if he has to have it, then he's got to find a way to get it. And so he sent Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Jehovah revealed? This is Jehovah's plan. For he shall grow up before him that is Christ. He shall grow up before him that is Jehovah as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. Jesus wasn't voted the most likely to succeed. He wasn't the tallest and the handsomest. And the... He had no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He wouldn't have graced any magazine covers, especially at the crucifixion. He is despised and rejected of men. That men, that sinful men, that men that marinated, soaked in sin from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet, that they would reject Christ, the sinless one. The great irony of Caiaphas who said, it is expedient that one man die for the people. One of the most ironic statements in all of history. He said, we don't want the Romans to come and take away our place and take away our nation. And so we have to kill Jesus because if we don't, Rome is going to come down on us. So it's expedient that one man die for the people. And boy, was he ever right. But that that Sanhedrin with its with its adultery, with its murder, with its... John chapter 8, they say, who's trying to murder you? And he said, you are. And by the end of the conversation, they tried to murder him. That such a sinful man would sit in judgment on such a sinless man. That they would despise him and reject him. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. You'll never suffer and not find he suffered more than you. You'll never go down that road of suffering and find he's not further down that road than you are. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The world looks at greatness and says greatness is in huge accomplishments. Greatness is in great piles of money. Greatness is in building a huge business. Greatness is in gathering large crowds. Greatness is in having power and passing laws. Mao very famously said, greatness grows out of the, power, out of the, out of the barrel of a gun. You look at Jesus at the crucifixion. What's great about that? I mean, the only one there is his mother, and your mother's there for everybody, and John and a couple of ladies, and you've given your life to come and, and, and offer yourself to Israel as her, as, as, as her king, and she's rejected you, and you come to the end, and you've got nothing. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, as a teenager, I discovered the truth of Psalm 51. When David said, Sacrifice and offering, thou wouldest not but a broken heart 
your heart ever been broken over your sin? Jesus carried all of that. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded. How can this verse not make cold chills run up and down your spine? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him this beautiful, marvelous, lovely, holy, sweet, spiritual, perfect Jesus has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He requires righteousness. We can't furnish it. He must pour out judgment. And so he sends Jesus, who is righteous, to take all my judgment and offer me his own righteousness for free. We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Jehovah to bruise him. Why? Because judgment must come where he doesn't find righteousness. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He requires righteousness when he looks at me. People are so kind to me. I had a brother come to me this morning. I don't remember his name. He said, he shook my hand and he said, I appreciate your writing ministry. He said, I read your stuff. He said, I'm just a nobody. I looked at him and I said, and I mean this all in my heart, I said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I'm not some, I'm a pastor, that's what I do, it's, it's who I am at this point in my life after all these years, but you know who I am? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's what I am. Because Christ satisfied all of that. Psalm 23. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's the message. Take your Bibles and go back to Exodus 34. Let me give you the application and we'll be done. Look again with me at our text. 
Exodus 34, verse 5, And the Lord, that's Jehovah, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of? It's like me walking up and saying, I'm Tom Brennan. I'm, that's who I am. I'm Tom Brennan. You'd be like eye-rolling, like who cares? But when God does it, now that, that we ought to care about. And the Lord, that's Jehovah, passed by before him and proclaimed, Here I am. The one who is who he is, the Lord, the Jehovah, the Jehovah Elohim, merciful and gracious, this is what I'm like. You say, you just got none hollering at me that Jehovah demands righteousness and now you're telling me he's merciful and gracious. Well, how can you not see that he is? How can you not see anything else in the cross? I feel so bad for people who look at the cross and, and they see the hatred of God as if God killed his own son. And I'm like, how can you look at the cross and see that? How can you not see grace and mercy flowing like a river? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. He requires righteousness. Well, by no means clear the guilty. If that includes visiting the iniquity upon the father, upon the children, he'll do that. But listen now, he's the God who requires righteousness and gives us what we need to be righteous. If you're in the room tonight and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, run to the cross. It's not in who you are. It's not in the good deeds that you do. It's not in the church you belong to or your knowledge or your behavior. It's not in your pastor or your religious leader or your pope or your imam or anything else. You're a sinner in the eyes of God. And your justification, that Bible word in in Romans chapter 3, just as if I'd never sinned, but I have sinned. Why does God view me just as if I'd never sinned? Because he gave me the righteousness of Christ. You're in the room tonight and you are a sinner and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can offer God anything else and it won't be acceptable because he requires righteousness. And the only one that can meet that requirement is Jesus. And what you have to offer him is Jesus. That's what. Listen. Most important decision you'll ever make in your whole life is whether you're going to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior or not. He requires righteousness. He gives us what we need to fulfill that requirement. But listen now, the same thing's true after we're saved as before we're saved. What does he require in me after I'm saved? Righteousness. <laughs> you say, I thought it was fine after that. It is in standing, but not in state. Listen, he requires that I obey him, but I can't. Oh, I've learned to love the, the beauty of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Uh, Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And he goes on to, to argue the fact that what grace produces in my life is holiness. The Old Testament God, Jehovah, who requires righteousness, who who gave the thou shalt and the thou shalt not in Exodus chapter 20. He comes to you, he comes to me, demands that we furnish him righteousness, and we can't give it. So he gives us grace, and that very grace he gives us, gives us the ability to obey him. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 6. That we've been freed from sin. We've been freed from sin shackles. 
Romans chapter 7, Paul argues with himself. Paul's a great arguer. He argues with himself and he talks about, well, the problem with this idea, God, that grace is going to produce holiness, that I can somehow meet your demand for righteousness because you give me the grace to do so. The problem is I'm me. Did you ever watch a, watch the folks grace this platform and you say to yourself, I wish I could be as holy as they are. They wish they could be as holy as you think they are too. And Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. Several years ago, I read Adam Hochschild's book about the, uh, about the, the, the abolition of the British slave trade. He was talking about how those slaves were transported from Africa to the New World. And it's in that book you find the classic uh, diagram of all those bodies stacked like cordwood inside those old wooden ships. And sometimes they, those slaves, they would be so depressed when they realized what was happening that they were, they, they were on a, never been on a ship before, but they're out in the ocean and they're never going to go back home. Uh, they, they would commit suicide. They would literally run and jump off the side of the vessel and drown themselves. Well, from the point of view of the slave master, that's, that's, that's my property. You're destroying my money by killing yourself. And so they would shackle them to each other. Because it may be that you're suicidal because you're never going to get back to your family in Africa, but your buddy doesn't want to die. So he's not going to let you go overboard. And they would, shackle them, they would shackle them to each other in such a way that they could not be released on, on ship. You had to have certain blacksmith's tools to release the shackles they made. And so they would get shackled on the African side and they would not get unshackled until they got to the new world. But one of the great tragedies is how they treated those people. They gave them no exercise, gave them no uh, very little food and very little fresh water and, and stacked them together like cordwood, as I said. And they lost a fair number of them just by death, just by disease dying. Watch this now. They're shackled together, and you can't unshackle them at sea. Which means if you're shackled to someone who dies of disease, you stay shackled to that body until you get to the new world. And as that body putrefies, as that body rots, as that body corrupts, you're stuck with that body. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He said, oh, that which I would not that I do, and that which I, that which I do that I would not. And he said, he said, I can't get rid of me. It's all well and good to tell me grace produces holiness, but I'm still me. Then Paul argues with himself again in Romans chapter 8. He only mentions the Holy Spirit once in the first eight chap- seven chapters of Romans, but he mentions him 16 times in the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 8. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gives me the power I need to exercise grace to let me live freed from sin. God comes to me. Jehovah comes to me. He requires that I live righteous. I can't because of my old nature. I can't because of my bent to sin. I can't because of the pride and bitterness and lust and greed and all of these things that are inside of me. I can't meet God's demand for righteousness. So he gives me the grace that lets me do it. And he gives me the power of the Holy Spirit that lets me live that way. And then I go to God and I offer him what is meet for him, which is righteousness. I'm not preaching sinless perfection. I'm preaching Romans 6, 7, and 8. There's not a single sin of anybody in this room that you have to commit. There may be strongholds in your life, 
that you've got to root out. But listen, beloved, there's not a single sin you have to commit. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, you've been freed from that. Why? Because he demands that you be righteous. You know how Pharaoh, he demanded the children of Israel build his treasure cities. That's what the Vogelin spoke of this morning. You remember how he took away what they needed to build it? If you want to go to the Oriental Institute right over here in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, you'll find that museum called the Oriental Institute, and they've got a bunch of, of biblical archaeological things there. They did the last time I was there. And you can go there and you can see the bricks that the, that the slaves in Egypt made and out, of, out of mud and clay, and you see straw sticking out of them. Pharaoh said, make bricks, but I'm not going to give you the straw. You need to make it. We say, what an unjust man to require something and not give me what I need to meet that requirement. Who's Jehovah? He requires righteousness. What well, is an unsaved person? I can't meet that requirement, so he gives me Jesus. As a saved person, I still can't meet that requirement, so he gives me grace and he gives me the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be holy. You say, are you? I'm working at it. I'm working at it. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask. To be like him. Through hill and valley. Through life's long journey. All I ask. To be like him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, The world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to the Baptist Pulpit.